0: Good morning. We are in Titus chapter 1. We finished looking at the salutation last Sunday, which is the first four verses, or the greeting of the letter. Now we get into the main body of the letter, and so that begins in verse 5, and we'll be looking at verses 5 through 9. So I would invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to that section you don't have a Bible, as was mentioned before, there are probably blue Bibles located underneath the seat around you. You can turn in that Bible to page 998, I believe, and I should bring you to the text. If you have a bulletin, in the bulletin, in the inside of the bulletin, the left side, is a place for you to take notes, and also, generally, you find the text that we're going to be looking at and also the title for the sermon. You'll see this is part one, so this will be a multi-parter. We'll be in this text several times, coming back to it again, examining it. But the title that I gave this passage or section is Essential Qualifications for Elders. Essential Qualifications for Elders. So I just want to start off by breaking down the title for you. Elders. Elders. That is the biblical title or a biblical title given to a group of men in a church who have been called by God to love, lead, feed, protect, or properly shepherd the sheep or believers of a local church, elders, as it relates to those leaders in the church. That's a definition. From our discipleship material that you are welcome and encouraged to go through our basic discipleship material. In Lesson 5, we take a look at the church and what the Bible says concerning it and its leaders. And there we give this explanation concerning elders. The church is not a community in which there is no authority, governance, and leadership among its members. In other words, it's not just a free-for-all. It's not just a get-together There is organization, and there is leadership in that organization. (laughs) Since the church began, there have been appointed leaders with delegated authority, delegated to them by God, to care for and watch over the saints, to be examples to them, and to minister God's word to them so they would remain steadfast in the faith, grow in love and unity, and be thoroughly equipped for every good work. These leaders are the elders, or how they're also referred to in the Bible, uh, overseers, pastors, shepherds. It was all referring to the same office, the same people within the church that hold that title, or titles. So that's elders. Essential qualifications for elders. Okay, the word qualifications. Just give you a basic definition, it is a quality or accomplishment that makes someone suitable for a particular job or activity. And finally, I've added two qualifications the word essential, essential, absolutely necessary, extremely important. Both are true in this case. So these qualifications that we're going to be looking at here in Titus are not simply nice but optional for the man who would lead and care for the church of God, but instead they are indispensable and vital. It's like when thinking about what you might, or I would say must have in a home or in a car, right? Some things, you don't mind if you have them or not, but some things are absolutely mandatory. You won't take the car unless it has this. You won't accept the house unless it has this item. It's the same here with these qualifications for elders. They are must-haves. Now, in June of last year, so just a little over a year ago, when I arrived at the final chapter of 1 Peter, we were making our way through that letter, and that's chapter 5, which is where Peter specifically addresses the elders of the various churches in Asia Minor concerning what proper care of God's people looks like, I paused as we got to that section and I did a sermon titled, Elders with a question mark. And I'm like, what is that? How should I understand this term? And that sermon I did, and you can go back, it's in our archive online, and I would encourage you to do that, maybe, to, no, I would encourage you to do it, especially as we're looking at these qualifications, because it'll fill in some other things that are important for you to understand or even be reminded of concerning this office in the church. But in that sermon, I covered the term or word itself, elder, along with the other related terms that I just mentioned that described this group of men like overseer, shepherd, and pastor. They all refer to the same person. Further, I talked about uh, plurality as it is related to elders. Again, you can go back and listen to that. I talked about the elders' responsibilities, and I talked about the responsibilities of the church toward its elders. And finally, I also briefly spoke about the qualifications for elders, and I referenced the passage In Titus that we're going to look at, along with the parallel passage in First Timothy that also lists elder qualifications, but I did not in that sermon go into detail regarding the qualifications. I did not. I just, I only had so much time, you know. Just, and you know how I am already. So I, I, I did not discuss that, but I referred to them and we looked at them briefly. But now that we're here in Titus and working our way through this letter, we are going to go through them in detail. So, let's read the text, which includes these qualifications, and then we'll jump on in. All right? You with me so far? All right. Titus, chapter 1, reading verses 5 through 9. The Apostle Paul wrote, this is why I left you in Crete. He's writing to Titus. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone, so now he's beginning to describe the qualifications, the essential qualifications for those men, Titus is to appoint. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, it's another way of referring to an elder, another title for that office. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard. Or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. One writer points out that these are qualifications, as I said, that a man must meet, but he must meet them prior to becoming an elder. They are not characteristics that a man should assume after he becomes an elder. Just to be clear. I mean, can you imagine? So Bob, as best we can tell... You are arrogant and quick-tempered, but we know you want to be an elder, and we could certainly use the help, so after you are appointed an elder, we would like you to work on becoming humble and a peaceful man so that you can get in line with these qualifications. Right. So that's not the situation. That's not the case. There's supposed to be a level of maturity In all of these areas, there are to be qualified men before entering the office. Now, I will likely mention this again. Let me just say, no, I will. I will mention this again each time we come back to this text. I have no idea how long we'll be here. We're only going to look at one qualification today, if that gives you any idea. But it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one. Some of the other ones are much more straightforward. Plus, we have communion, so I have to shorten my time a little. So we'll be back we'll be back all right in this text at least a few times. But as we examine these essential qualifications for elders, I want you to keep in mind that what we are looking at here is basically what godliness looks like. Okay? Or to say it another way, what would be true of someone who has a mature godly character, or a life that has been shaped and transformed by faith in the gospel and the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the degree that the life is manifesting, although imperfectly, manifesting a mature measure of Christlikeness. And so that means that our text, while it is speaking specifically about elders of the church, can certainly be applied to every believer here and should be. Those who, as believers, should be worshipers and lovers of the one true God, and consequently chasing after Christ-likeness or looking to become more like Jesus. In other words, the entire church should aspire to be what the church's leaders must be. Okay? You with me? You should aspire to be what the leaders of the church must be. Now back to our text. Verse 5. Titus, as we have discussed previously, or as I have explained to you, was left in Crete to put what remained into order. Left in Crete by Paul. Paul and him being there together, Paul had to leave. We don't know why. But he had to leave and he left behind. The NIV puts that verse this way, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So what was left unfinished means that there are still things that need to be addressed, defects among the local communities of believers there that needed to be fixed. Paul was probably not in Crete very long before he had to leave, but he left his trustworthy and very competent co worker in the ministry, Titus, on the island to carry out some particular tasks concerning the churches there. These fledgling churches on the island needed to be properly organized, which required the establishment of biblical leadership. Also, The false teachers needed to be dealt with and refuted, and there was a need for additional instruction or teaching concerning the gospel that the Cretans professed to believe. And so that's what we see play out in the letter. But the primary task for Titus was to appoint elders in every town, because Titus isn't going to, as we see at the end of the letter, Paul is going to send help there relief, and then he wants Titus to go do something else. So the idea is not that Titus would stay there forever, but that he would establish leaders for these churches so that there would be someone there to care for the individual bodies of Christ there on the island and watch over them and guide them in the things of God. So he was appointed To go to every town or each community on the island where there was a gathered group of believers, and there in each town where there was a Christian congregation of sorts, he was to appoint elders. Now, the word elders in Titus is plural, and I already spoke about this back in that message in June, but I just want to point it out again because I referenced this section along with some others. In other words, what he's telling Titus to do is appoint a number of men, more than one certainly, at least more than one, otherwise it's not plural, in each town where there's a congregation of believers or a local church, if you will, okay? So that's important because it means that the model is not one guy shepherding the, body of the local body of Christ, one guy shepherding with the delegated authority. That's not the model, biblical model that we see, although that does exist in some other churches. And some actually believe that is the model. I do not, we do not. The eldership here does not. Obviously, we have a plurality of elders. So, again, he wasn't to appoint an elder in each town, or even an elder over the entire island like a bishop of sorts. No, a plurality of men, a group of men in each town. But these men had to be qualified men. And that was Paul's practice. And you can look that up in Acts 14, 23. As he preached the gospel, as people came to Christ, as there was a formation of a group of believing folks, he then would go back and look to appoint elders in those congregations to care for and shepherd and watch over and feed the sheep. Okay? So you can see that in Acts 14, 23, 21 through 23. You can look that up later. Then in verse 6, Paul begins to lay out the essential qualifications for these men. Titus was to go about appointing. So now let's get into that. And we'll just read verse 6, even though we won't cover everything there. He says this, all right, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. All right, above reproach, that's the very first thing he says, which is also translated in other Bibles, other translations, blameless, blameless. I'm going to come back to that again. I believe, next Sunday, and probe that a little more. But let me just say this on the front side. One Christian writer had this to say about that particular qualification, above reproach. It's the very first one he states. He says this, above reproach is the general, overarching, all-embracing qualification for a church elder. And then he imagines someone maybe saying in this, he wrote a book on eldership is the very book that we use to train our elders and also to vet them to make sure when they're in this process of being trained and vetted. In other words, they're not yet formally elders, but we go through this book. But in that book, he uh, and it's called Biblical Eldership, in that book, he imagines someone saying, wait a minute, no one is above reproach, no one's perfect. So then he addresses that. There is a significant difference between being above reproach and being perfect or without fault. Being above reproach means that the elder's reputation has not been marred by moral or ethical disgrace. Okay? So that's all I'm going to say basically today about being above reproach. But that's the idea. It has not been marred. He has not been tainted in some way by moral or ethical disgrace. It doesn't mean he's a perfect man who never sins, because there was only one of those. There was just one. His name is Jesus. That's it. But he is not known for immorality or being unethical. He is an upright man, not a perfect man, okay? Okay. And it is the overarching qualification. So in all of these areas, he's going to expand upon this, he is to be above reproach in every area of his life. His home life, his work life, his personal life, above reproach. And he'll expand upon that as he moves through this section. So after Paul states this basic overarching qualification, he does just that, he expands on it, and he begins with the elder's home. The elder's home. So again, remember, as I keep saying elder, because that's who he's addressing, you should be applying this to yourself as well, because this is a picture of mature godliness or mature Christ-likeness. Okay? So he begins with the elder's home, or family life, or more specifically, the man's wife and children. You learn a lot about a man by examining his home life. So the home life of the elder needs to be above reproach. That's the bottom line, and he's going to help us understand what that would look like. And the first qualification concerning his home life is what we're going to focus on, which is the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, if you don't already know, the exact meaning of this statement is not entirely obvious or easy to determine. And so, the interpretations concerning it are varied and numerous, okay? That's not the case for other qualifications that are stated here. I'm going to be very more dogmatic about those particular qualifications. We take a position. We have an interpretation uh, in in regard to this statement. Uh, But just I want to throw out that caveat. There is different opinions and interpretations concerning it, because it's not blatantly clear. But I think there is a strong case for the position we take. Otherwise, we wouldn't take it, (laughs) right? I mean, that's ultimately, "Ah, that's weak, but we'll accept it. No, we think it's the strongest uh, argument, okay? So we're going to look at it, and I'm going to bring you into that conversation so that because in the church world, there are different uh, positions concerning that statement and that qualification concerning an elder, the husband of one wife. So first, does Paul intend this to mean that an elder has to be a married man? Single men need not apply. Is that what it means? And the, every single, and you're answering already, that's, I like that, that's great, if you answer correctly. Um, but correctly is just the position we take. And because there are, there are churches who would teach that is what it's saying. And they would not allow a single man to be an elder. I don't, I don't believe that to be the case. In fact, um, along with that thinking, some have similarly understood Paul's statement concerning children. That's there. So, right? If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, he's got to be married, and his children are believers, huh. he's got to have children. In addition, the word children in verse 6 is plural. So that added fact has been understood to mean that a married man with only one child can't be an elder. Now, because they're just taking the logic and they're applying it through the passage, they're trying to be consistent. Uh, I mean, I guess you could argue, you know, you have to have more than one kid to really know what parenting is. <laughs> I, hey, and listen, if you just have one child, it's okay. I was an only child, and I gave my, my parents a run for the money. But uh, I don't know, you know, because you never have to hear, stop touching me, you know, because if you hear that and it's an only child, that's a serious problem. But when you have more than one, it's just a whole other world of issues you've got to deal with, and you're tested as a parent, so on and so forth. But honestly, I think for us, having, having more than one was actually in some ways easier than just having one. So I, you know, I don't, either way, that's a position that some take. They're applying the logic, all right. It talks about the guy being married, so he must be, have to be married. It talks about him having children. He must not only have a child, but he's got to have children as well. So some believe that domestic qualifications for an elder require that a man, in order to be an elder, be married and include having, I guess, at least two children. I do not. This church, the leadership of this church, does not take that position. I would say that both of the statements in verse 6 concerning the elder's domestic life are meant to apply only if the conditions stated are true of him. Okay, Or in other words, if the man is married then he is to be the husband of one wife. And if the man has any offspring, then certain things must be true concerning his children or child in order for him to be an elder. That, I believe, was Paul's intent. He must be above reproach in his marriage if he's married, and above reproach in his parenting if he has a kid or kids with me so far? And I would add that if, if we were to understand Paul to be saying, if we were to take the position that I just shared with you that some hold that I don't think is right, that elders have to be married men, then it would certainly be a very strange thing for Paul to demand in light of his comments concerning singleness that are recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 32-35. through 35. At another time, not right now, you should take a look at them, but there in 1 Corinthians 7, he speaks of singleness as being an advantage when it comes to serving the Lord, since the single person whose interests are not divided between the Lord and a spouse can give more of themselves to the Lord. He literally calls it undivided devotion to the Lord for the single person. That's verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 7. So it would be odd for him to now say, oh yeah, but an elder who is going to be asked to give quite a bit of themselves to this work, he would demand that they be married if singleness is the advantage that he says it is. So, One writer concerning you know the fact that he's talking about married men says that it can be assumed that a majority of the candidates would be married certainly those that you're looking at but surely remaining unmarried would not be considered blameworthy <laughs> right so if what we're looking at is this is what it looks like to be above reproach in the elders home well if he's single he's not above re- no but if he's married To be above reproach, he must be the husband of one wife, which we still don't know what that means, but I don't believe it means that he has to be married, just that if he's married, he has to be the husband of one wife, okay? Another writer points out, if Paul had meant that the elder must be married, the reading would have been a, not one, wife. He must be the man of a wife. In other words, Paul certainly could have been more clear if that was his intention, and this, it's not clear if that was his intention. Not at all. Okay? So then is Paul's statement a prohibition? If it's not that, is it a, let's consider the other thing that some think it is. Is it a, a prohibition against polygamy? One wife, not two or three or four. I mean... That makes sense because a man with multiple wives definitely wouldn't have any time left to care for the church. <laughs> Seriously. One's enough. So is that Paul's intent with this statement? I don't, I don't believe it is. There are some who think it is. One writer points out, commentator says this, polygamy was not normally practiced at the time and place where Titus ministered. If polygamy were being addressed, it would have been a peculiar addition to a list of elder qualifications. Something akin to saying in this society, an elder must not be a cannibal. We know what cannibalism is and do not want our leaders to be cannibals, but it would be strange to put it in a list of qualifications where the practice does not commonly exist. I agree with that, that logic. Polygamy, of course, was and is wrong in the eyes of the Lord, but that that wouldn't have been tolerated for anyone in the church. And some of these other qualifications would have been, there would have been some tolerance. In other words, uh, a man with unruly children, you know, okay, he needs to... He wouldn't have been put out of the church because he has unruly children, or an arrogant man who's struggling with that. He wouldn't be put out of the church if he was arrogant. But a man with multiple wives? He comes into the church, he says, yeah, I'm going to marry multiple... No, you're going to be put out of the church. It just, it doesn't seem to fit that that's the issue. But polygamy is, of course... Wrong, in the eyes of the Lord. So it's doubtful that Paul's statement is a prohibition against polygamy. So if it does, if that's not what it means, what about this? Let's try this one out for size, because here's another thing that some believe it means. They believe it means that the elder is restricted to one marriage to one woman in his lifetime. They're trying to get at, what does it mean, the husband of one wife? Or, they put it this way, married only once in a lifetime. Well, again, it doesn't, it doesn't clearly say that. And that, of course, would bring up the issue of a widower who has been remarried. right? So if you have a man who had a wife, and then he loses his wife, and he's at a young enough age to get married again, and it seems that Paul certainly encourages younger widows to remarry, and Paul's the same one who wrote this, uh, what do you do with him? If that's what it means, I guess then he cannot be an elder. Even if he desires it, and if he qualifies on every level, he would not qualify because his wife died and then he's remarried. So those who take that position, well, some of them will make an exception. Well, the widower, yes, of course. Uh, but what about Divorce. And by divorce, I mean a biblically legitimate divorce. There is room for that. And then later, the man marries, remarries, after a biblically legitimate divorce. Or you could even start to step into the realm of, what if it was before he was saved, and he was divorced, and now he's saved, and he's been remarried. Would he be forbidden from being an elder? Because he's no longer the husband of one wife, but now is on wife number two? So can a divorced person who's remarried be an elder? One writer, and that's, that's, the, that's what some people are looking at the passage, and that's what they're saying. They're saying no. It's one wife, one life, one, in one lifetime. That's it. That's all you get. And If you've had more than that, or if you take on more than that, sorry. So one writer, showing why some might take that position, said this. But he disagrees with it. He says, Among Jews, Romans, and Greeks, it was easy to divorce and remarry, at least for the men. <laughs> you know, they could put their wives away pretty easily. Kind of like no fault in divorce in California, you know. In the case of remarriage, following a divorce, two or three living women could have been married to the same man over time, right? So I don't like the way you cook my food. <laughs> You're out. All right, let's get another one. Let's try again, you know, or whatever. That's trivial stuff. They just put them away and we get another wife. So technically, they're not practicing polygamy, but people would refer to this, in a sense, as serial polygamy or successive polygamy, in a sense. So in the case of remarriage following a divorce, two or three living women could have been married to the same man. As I said, some have termed this practice successive polygamy they believe Paul prohibits a remarried divorced man from office because of the potentially embarrassing situations his ex-wife or ex-wives creates for the elder and the congregation well that's potential right that's potential it doesn't necessarily going to be a problem and if it was a legitimate divorce biblical divorce or for that matter the man just you know it was before he was saved all these things start to come into the to the discussion if it was when he was an unsaved man he got married got divorced but now he's come to Christ and now he's seen the light and it's not possible for him to reconcile she's since remarried you got all kinds of things going on now he's been remarried to a christian woman he's serving the lord he's honoring the lord and he has a desire to be a leader in the church as an elder, and he qualifies on every count, but then they say, sorry, buddy, you've been divorced. And, you know, we don't want, I guess, your ex-wife coming back in. The potential there is that she'll cause problems for you, and it'd be, you know, bring some mark against the church. I I just don't, uh, I don't see it that way. If that is the case, Paul did a, poor job of providing us information. He kind of just left. I mean, really? It's all that? Then you didn't speak to any of these other issues that would certainly pop up concerning this matter. That it, would, it begs all kinds of other questions that need to be answered. And then once you go down that road, then depending on your position as a Christian concerning divorce and remarriage, and that is a whole, woo, open that Pandora box and all kinds of wonderful things come out, there are many different interpretations and understandings concerning that. What's legitimate, what's not legitimate, what's allowed, what's not allowed. Well, then that all plays into that passage as well. I just don't think that's what Paul is saying. I don't think that's what he's communicating. I think a divorced man, not in every case, but a divorced man could, who re- is now remarried, or for that matter, not remarried, could be an elder. That's my position. Because I don't think it's forbidden. It's forbidden here in this passage. If it was, then I would not take that position. You get it, right? Because we're all, what we're trying to do is come under the word, but then we got to figure out what is the word saying and then come under it. So how should we understand this qualification then? How should we understand it? And I will read to you Strocks, who is the author of biblical eldership, I'll read to you just his quote and someone else's quote. This is the position we take Uh, this is a position other like-minded folks take, but it's not the position everyone takes, all right? So he points out that the simplest and least problem-creating interpretation, because some of those other interpretations create problems that you have to then deal with and they're not necessarily, you can't deal with them. So it's like, well then, I don't think that's what Paul is saying. So the simplest and least problem-creating interpretation is this, he says this, the phrase, the husband of one wife, it's not restricting or anything. It's actually a positive statement. It's meant to be a positive statement that expresses faithful, monogamous marriage. In English, we would say faithful and true to one woman or a one woman man, which is literally what it is in the Greek. And woman can be interpreted as Wife and man can argue, could be understood woman, wife. Man, the word there used could be man or husband, but it's literally one woman, man. And he points it out. The latter phrasing closely follows the Greek wording. Such a man is above reproach in his sexual and marital life. Another writer taking the same position adds this. The precise wording of Paul's Greek phrase is not simply that an elder must be the husband of one wife, as we translate it in terms familiar to us, the literal statement of the apostle is that an elder must be a one-woman man. The literal phrasing seems less concerned with one's marital history and more focused on whether the man being considered for office is perceived as living in honesty, faithfulness, faithfulness, and devotion to his wife. Okay? So is the man, here's I think the question, is the man consistently living in a faith, in faithful commitment to his wife? Yes or no? That is the issue. No? Then he is not above reproach in his marriage, and he is not qualified. And certainly he needs to work on that, but he is at this point not qualified. So infidelity would disqualify the man. And I would say, whether it was at that time or even in the past, would likely disqualify the man. Depends on how long ago it was. Because it demonstrates there's a mark on him. He is not above reproach concerning his wife and his loyalty to her, his faithfulness to the covenant he made with her. One writer says, recent or serial infidelity would annul one's eligibility for office, as would evidence that the man is not extending to his wife the unique obligations, privileges, and regard required in biblical marriage. Biblical marriage. You make a covenant with that woman before God that it's you and you alone, baby. No other woman is to come into that arrangement in any way, that particular arrangement. I'm loyal to you and you alone until death. Right? MacArthur says an elder must have an unsullied, lifelong reputation for devotion to his spouse and to sexual purity. So I can tell you that as I've looked, you know, tried, considered, and then certainly we can talk about this another time, the man who wants to be an elder, he has to actually want that. It's a I believe he's being called by God to that, so he has to express desire to that. But when I've looked at those who might be expressing desire and then also qualifications, and it's one of the first areas I look, in, look for. What's the relationship with your wife? What is it really? I mean, could it be said, anybody examining you from the outside and knows you a little bit, could it be said that you are absolutely, fully committed to your woman? You don't have wandering eyes you're not flirting with other women, you're not having inappropriate relationships with them, but you are fully, completely, you've made a covenant with your eyes, as Job said. You've given yourself to her. You are committed to her. You love her and her alone. It's the first area I look. And it says a lot. It'll say a lot about the man. Because if he's not... Devoted to her and her alone, and if he is playing the field in any way or doing things he should not be doing with the opposite sex, it says something about his relationship with God. There's something off. Because a man who is in love with God and growing more in love with Him and worshiping Him. Is going to desire to do the things that are pleasing to God, right? And what is pleasing to God is that a man love his wife as Christ loved the church. Huh? Right. And if a man's going to lead God's people, he better be in love with God and loving God. Otherwise, there's going to be serious problems. One writer says, why is this essential? Why is this specific thing essential that he be a one-woman man as we understand it to be? And again, I understand there's different interpretations out there, but this is the position we take. Well, he says both the Old and New Testaments emphasize sexual purity because the relationship of a man to his wife is to model the covenant relationship of God to his people. Is God unfaithful to his people? Certainly not. He goes on to say, particularly that of Christ's relationship to the church. Is Christ unfaithful to his people? Even when they act stupid. He remains faithful and committed to them. He will never forsake them. He is with them to the end. He is the great shepherd, but elders are to be under shepherds, under him, modeling him. And so if they are married, they must be a one-woman man. Writer goes on to say the elders' failure to be above reproach in their marital and sexual lives will produce moral decay in the church and will incur, incur, sorry, the watching world's condemnation. I mean, just think about it, beloved. Think about all why this is so essential. It should be fairly obvious. I've already given you, but several ideas. But how are you going to trust this guy if his wife can't trust him? How are you going to trust him? I look for that. I look for that. I can tell you, as of right now, every single elder of this church, I have looked at that closely. And part of it is you talk to the wives. You don't have the husband tell, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good, man. Nah, man, go to the source, right? Talk to the wife, get to know the wife. Does she trust her husband? Does she not fear that when he's out and about, does she she have any reservations about he might be messing around or not being loyal to her, devoted to her alone? Because if she does, something's wrong. Something's wrong in that relationship. So for all the elders that are currently in place, I believe they are one-women men. What am I saying? They are one-women men. Thank you. I had to go plural with that. They are one-women men. They are are (laughs) devoted to their wives. Alone. I believe that. They're committed to them. They're not, you just, there's... If I saw anything that looked like, you know, checking out other women, all that stuff, or inappropriate with women, boom, done, sorry. They're not going, there's no need to go further, at least not in this regard. But you wouldn't be able to trust them as a body if their wife doesn't trust them. What about commitment? You made a commitment to that woman. Now you're breaking the commitment. And you now want me to believe you're going to make commitments to this fellowship? to give yourself to them, to care for them, that you won't, as soon as something, you know, a little better looking comes along, won't just take off, or when things get tough, you won't be like, eh, packing up, out of here. No, I, I need a man that's gonna stick to it, no matter what, because he made a commitment. So it says many things about the man, and this is why it has to be this way. If he is married, he must be devoted fully, completely to his wife. What about being an example to God? I mean, example to God. Example to the church. So if I'm going to call you to love your wife, men, as Christ loved the church, I'm supposed to model that. Well, if I'm not a one-woman man, I'm not modeling that. It's a terrible witness to the world. And beloved, if you've ever seen it take place where a leader of a church has had an affair or messed around, which unfortunately happens too much. It, that it happens at all is too much, but it, jeez, it is devastating to that body. The damage it does, does to that, that body. Any of you who've been through it and seen that or been part of that, you know. It's devastating. People start to question all kinds of things. Do I even want to be a part of a church anymore? Can I trust anybody? And if the gospel doesn't work to save that man who I thought was following after God, if it it can't stop him from having an affair, then what about my husband? They start to question all those things. The message that a cheating man sends about Christianity to the world, to the church, the message it sends about the gospel, that the gospel doesn't really have the power to transform. No, it does. It does. Glory be to God. It does change you. It can. It will. If you let it, it'll it'll make you like Christ. It'll make you love God more, and because you love God more, you'll love your woman. This qualification, as I said, can be applied to every married Christian. Every married Christian. Your goal, your... What you should want to be known of you is that you are, if you're a married man, that you are a one-man... Sorry. (laughs) I didn't say it, so I'm okay. You are a... Goodness, one-woman-man... And if you are a woman, let's not leave you out, huh? then you are, and this is what I meant to say, a one-man woman. You are a one-man woman. You, because women cheat too. but They do. Messed up world. But specifically, we're only addressing elders here because elders are men. So it'd be a married man, and so he addresses that. But application can be made to both as we're taking this in and considering this is what it looks like to have a mature level of Christ-likeness, right? If any of our elders ever stop being one-woman man, men, then we will remove them, because they should be. You understand? You don't say, oh, you know, oh he just, he, he wasn't paying attention, and he just kind of got caught up in this, and you know, this girl at work kept, you know, she was the aggressor, blah, blah, blah. She was the aggressor. These are the kind of things. She was the aggressor, yeah, so really, it's on her. I mean, he was just kind of a victim of his circumstances. What are you talking about? He shouldn't even have been in any situation or position where that could have ever occurred. She should have known by the way he carries himself that that wasn't ever an option, But I've heard things have happened like this, and they go, well, what about forgiveness and repentance? He repented. He messed around, but he repented. Isn't he forgiven? Yeah, if he truly repented, he is. Glory be to God, forgiven. In Christ, that sin's covered too, but he can't be an elder. Okay? Brother, we'll keep going. We'll keep going, but I got to stop because it's already late, and it's time to celebrate our Lord's death. So, our dear brother, there he is, Elder Tim. He is the oldest, by the way. (laughs) I like saying that.